Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by The Bookshelf, Pizza Trocadero, CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, and you and other people like you who have pledged a flexible monthly donation to this show's Patreon page. Please consider becoming a Creative Control with Vishkana patron by visiting patreon.com slash creative control. The following is a special documentary episode of Creative Control with Vishkana. Drive Like Jehu played a free hometown show at San Diego's Balboa Park on August 31st, 2014. Aside from a few practices in the preceding weeks, it was the first time in 19 years that guitarist John Reese, drummer Mark Trombino, bassist Mike Kennedy, and vocalist and guitarist Rick Froberg performed together, and fans couldn't believe it was happening. It's my pleasure and honor, a lot of us uh, didn't think this was going to happen, but... Somehow we managed to make the impossible possible. 19 years later, Drive Like Jehu! the coolest thing that I've ever been a part of in terms of just like a, a, a performance aspect. That's John Reese. The reason the show happened is because his friend Dang Naguyan is a Spreckles Organ Society board member, and he and Reese cooked up the idea of the long dormant drive like Jehu jamming with civic organist Dr. Carol Williams in Balboa Park. It was um, all my friends, my family. It was uh, very special. It was really cool in a setting that is very important to me. San Diego's, you know, is more than just where I live, you know. It's kind of who I am. It's part of who I am. Though Reese and Froberg are known for playing in other bands like Rocket from the Crypt, Hot Snakes, The Sultans, The Night Marchers, and Obits, among others, Drive Like Jehu's rhythm section more or less stopped playing music in public when the band ended. So the Balboa Park show is particularly significant for drummer Mark Trombino. It was like one of the best 
nights of my life. Like, I keep saying things like that, but that, I'm, I'm sincere. That was one of the best nights of my life, if not my, the best night. I don't know. Like, everything about it was perfect. The venue was this organ pavilion. It was outdoors. We're in San Diego. And beforehand, I was like, outdoor sucks. I don't like playing outside. The sound system's going to suck. Blah, blah, blah. No one's going to show up. We're going to play terrible. <laughs> you know, all this stuff. But the venue itself was beautiful. And the time of day we played, it was like sunset. So, like, it was, it was, we started, it was like dusk. And then by the time we finished, it was night and the lights were on. And 5,000 people showed up for this thing. And we played great, you know? And it sounded good. And people were into it. And, like, every, it just felt so good. And I was so, so happy to finally get another just another chance to play with Travel Jay. Like, if that had been it, I would have been completely satisfied and felt like that was a nice period on the band. You know, like, it would have been... I would have been happy just to have been... Like, that completely satisfied me. We, we could stop now. I, I don't feel any more weirdnesses about not playing anymore. I don't feel any, any, like, animosity or any sort of jealousy. Like, that would be fine. Like, we did it. We played our last show. Done. I'm happy. In the lead-up to the Balboa Park show, Reese declared that Drive Like Jehu had no future plans, but then the offers kept coming to play Riot Fest and Fun 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 Festival and small club shows, and according to Rick Froberg, they were just too good to pass up. People threw money at us. I mean, what can I tell you? I mean, it's, it's like, oh, you want to give us a bunch of money to play this show and and uh, we can play do a club show? Great. I mean, <laughs> yeah. All right. It sounds awesome. Let's do it. And it, it, was, so, it was so much fun doing it the first time. We were like, yeah, let's do this again. Why not? And if people are going to pay us for it, that's great. Because, you know, God knows we'd do it without getting paid. Yeah, I was definitely nervous. Um, oddly, though, I wasn't as nervous for that one because we only had to play five songs, and they weren't, we didn't play any burners. We didn't have, we didn't, we played all, all of our, all songs that could be played that had, an, had enough, that had adequate space for a, uh, an organ to sort of fit in there and uh, contribute. But, you know, we, we didn't play any burners. Um, when we played, the next time we played, uh, the Casbah or something like that, I was nervous because we had to go out there and most of our songs are just like, you know, you know, so that was, was going to take a little more out of you. <laughs> it worked out. All of this has been a particularly unexpected and exhilarating situation from Mike Kennedy. Unlike the others who either played in or produced other people's bands, after Drive Like Jehu, Kennedy pretty much completely left music behind to become a chemist. For me personally, you know, being 20 years not playing with the band and then, then getting back and learning the songs again and going through uh, practices and, and getting excited about playing shows and playing that first show and then going on to play others, it's, it's, just, it's been great for me because I've been out of music pretty much, you know, the whole time. So this is this is wonderful. Drive Like Jehu were originally only around for five years. That run between 1990 and 1995 yielded two classic albums, 1991's self-titled masterpiece and its stellar 1994 follow-up Yank Crime. Merge Records also released a two-song single in 1992. Other than a compilation appearance, that was pretty much it. But something about their sound, post-hardcore maybe, but definitely loud, fierce, emotive rock and roll, and their mysterious legacy has taken on mythological proportions among underground music aficionados. Where did they come from? What was their sound? Why did they disappear in 1995, and what brought them back together in 2014? Now that they're touring again, what does the future of the band look like? 
Some of these questions will be answered here, right now, featuring interviews with all four band members and other people they collaborated with along the way. This is the story of one of the greatest rock and roll bands that very few people seem to know anything about. This is the story of Drive Like Jehu. John Reese was born and raised in San Diego, California, where he still lives to this day. As far back as he can remember, he always loved music, and strange records seemed to find him. He fondly recalls listening to a Snoopy vs. the Red Baron album as a kid, and maybe even more weirdly, a Happy Days LP featuring unknown voice actors in place of the actual television cast. But there was actually a song on there. It wasn't really a song. It was just a skit where the cast of Happy Days meets the cast of... Welcome Back, Cotter. It's a really weird one. And then there's one part of the record where they play the theme to Happy Days, and it loops over and over again. And then over the loop of the theme to Happy Days, it's uh, someone in a Fonzie voice doing all of Fonzie's catchphrases. So it'd be like, the theme to Happy Days is like going on and on this loop, and then you hear like, hey, sit on it. Hey, cool it. And I, that was a really, I remember really liking that record and really liking Snoopy vs. Red Band. Those were the two that were my favorite. I remember after that getting into, oh, Jackson 5. That was a really big thing, you know, seeing them play in concert. That was definitely informative. By like fourth, fifth grade, really getting into Kiss, more rock and roll stuff. Alice Cooper, seeing Kiss play on the Dynasty tour. My parents made me do this, like, I really wanted to go see Kiss. I'm like, the parents said, well, you know, we'll take you to see KISS, but you're going to have to work for it. And by work for it, you know, you have to earn these credits in the form of stars. And the way you earn a star is by, like, making your bed or picking up the dog turds in the front yard or, you know, just doing some kind of chore. And I needed to get 100 of these stars, and I had a month to do it in order to, to be able to go see KISS in concert on the Dynasty Tour. And it was about a week out, and I had only had, like, 50 stars. But I had done everything. I had, like, I mean, I repainted the house. I had, like, washed the car, like, every day. I was going beyond, you know, but there was just no real feasible way to, to meet this goal. And on the day before the concert, there were still a lot of stars that were, you know, that I needed to, to get that I knew I wasn't going to, to be able to obtain. And I broke down. I started crying. And my dad's like, oh, we bought those tickets months ago. Yeah, we're going to go. So that was not so much a musical thing, a musical <laughs> kind of education, I guess, but I don't trust Whitey. As he got older, Reese gravitated more towards ACDC and harder rock. He met a kid named Adam who, in the summer before 7th grade, got him into punk and records by Black Flag, the Groundhogs, the Pagans, and more. Eventually, Reese heard the Sex Pistols and Dead Kennedys. And that was a big deal and, uh, you know, felt like I was exposed to a, a, not only a new universe, but a new way of listening and approaching music and the expectations of what, how music should make me feel definitely changed and um, it's an excitement and a thirst that basically hasn't, hasn't stopped since. 
As it turns out, it wasn't underground rock bands that turned Reese on to the idea of playing music himself. It was actually The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I really liked Doc Severson. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, it was a late night show and I wasn't, you know, often allowed to stay up that late to watch The Johnny Carson Show. Didn't know I had school the next day and whatnot. But on those times when I saw it, I was, you know, it was like this sense of like, I think I felt like I was a bit more adult and grown up, you know, because I was being able to watch this thing that came on, you know, for me, what was considered way late at night. And Doc Severson always had these cool clothes, and he was always ripping on the trumpet. So Doc Severson was kind of my first favorite musician. Someone were to ask me, uh, you know, at like five and six years old, who my favorite musician was, I would have said Doc Severson. After obtaining a trumpet in the fourth or fifth grade and then in frustration abandoning it because he couldn't figure out how to play the thing, Reese bought himself a guitar from Sears in and around the sixth grade. The built-in amplifier and high-gain energy settings of that guitar can be credited with causing most of his hearing loss. Reese would try desperately to start bands and keep them together, but few people then and few people now are as passionate about music as John Reese. His first bands had names like Coitus Interruptus, Conservative Itch, and possibly even others with the initials CI. He lived in central San Diego, and the people he tended to play with were a good drive or bus ride away. He'd mostly jam with his friend Seth, but they never had a drummer. In fact, if they played shows, they'd often ask drummers from other bands on the bill to just sit in and play these songs they weren't familiar with. That's how desperate Reese was to play and perform music. He just couldn't find his kindred spirit. At least not yet. Rick Froberg is originally from Los Angeles, California, and he moved to San Diego when he was 12 years old. I grew up in a, a single-parent household for a while, and uh, my father remarried, and we moved from Los Angeles to San Diego, which is a, it's more suburban and lots more room to run around in and things like that. I don't know, I, 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 you know, I have a pretty ordinary suburban upbringing. I, I always loved music. Uh, you know, when I, my first record was like a Beatles record or whatever, and I checked them out in the library. The help is the one I checked out and ruined it probably. Even when I lived in Los Angeles, we used to we used to we used to, we used to pretend we were the Beatles. We used to go out in the, you know the uh, whatever the playground during recess, and we would everyone would be a Beatle. I was always stuck with being Ringo, so I'd, I'd play like pencils on my on my uh, my lunchbox. Kind of makes sense that Froberg's first instrument was the drums, which he gravitated towards because it seemed simple enough to be a drummer. After obtaining a toy drum kit while he lived in Los Angeles, he discovered it was more complicated than he thought, and he quit playing the drums and moved on to something else. When I started to actually play music, I think what inspired me was hearing things like Sonic Youth and things like that, where it's like, oh, I can do that. You know, and, you know, somebody would loan me a guitar or I'd borrow, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, you could play these things that sounded sort of like Sonic Youth without the guitar being in tune and stuff like that. And I thought that was pretty neat. They were an inspiration to play because it, otherwise it just seems impossible. You know, I couldn't play. I like, you know, I liked heavy metal and stuff like that. But I couldn't play it. There's no, there's no possible, still can't play it. Yeah, that's a great thing about, you know, sort of the, the noisy punk thing that happened in the 80s or whatever that at least that I got to hear that it just made things seem like you could you could actually this is something you could do and there are really no rules and you can make a big racket and not really know what you're doing In 
1986, Froberg encountered Reese for the first time at an outdoor anarcho-punk picnic. John, I met at this thing. Uh, there's this, in San Diego. There's this. There's this bi-monthly rag called the Daily Impulse, which is like kind of an anarchist punk news sheet or whatever. And uh, they would put on different events, and they put on one an event in uh, in, in Mariners Point in San Diego. It's a little park uh, next to the bay. And it was the Anarchy Picnic or whatever. So uh, these bands, certain bands played, like that band Iconoclast and Diatribe, and um, I think John's band played too. Uh, it was called, I think his band was called Coitus Interruptus, and that's where I met John. And this, it's funny because this whole thing turned into a riot. The cops showed up and beat up a bunch of people and stuff like that. So it did turn out to be anarchy. Despite, or maybe even because of the volatile and inspiring atmosphere, something sparked between Reese and Froberg, and they aimed to hang out more and possibly even play music together. Rick lived in North County, and I lived kind of more in the central San Diego kind of city area. And when you don't have a car, I mean, that 30-minute drive, I mean, might as well be L.A. You know what I mean? It's, like, pretty hard to get, get around San Diego. Public transit sucks. So it wasn't until there was some <laughs> way of, like, getting to and from up there that we kind of started playing. So I think that's kind of why things kind of happened a bit later when we were 18. And then the first time I ever got to play with John, I, I took the bus down from North County, Northern San Diego County where I lived, which took a couple hours. And he, he met me, rolled up, and he was uh, on a skateboard, and he was smoking a joint, rolling around Pacific Beach on his skateboard. And that's, that's kind of... I met him, I started to hang out with those guys, and um, him and his friends, and uh, and eventually tried to be in one of his, one of his bands, tried to be the singer. Yeah, he had a band, like I said, he had a band called uh, Coitus Interruptus, which turned into a band called Conservative Itch. It never, it was kind of a, it was kind of a really ramshackle sort of his, his equipment was always breaking and the members were leaving. I remember seeing him play at uh, the Jackie Robinson YMCA in San Diego and, uh, and he put the, he put a show on, a big show with those mystic bands and stuff like that. And his band, had, like one by one, abandoned him while he was playing. He was the last person left standing. He ended up just sitting there on the stage playing, I think a, a government issue cover blending in he played that by himself and then he played like another song and and he was completely compelling just watching him he was he was he was already kind of like to me john john's like a star you know and he just seemed that way then while reese found it difficult to connect with musicians froberg had a bit of a network happening and he introduced john to people like don ankrum who played bass and went to school with a drummer named joey piro Though that trio had different singers, Froberg eventually got the job when nobody else would do it. He wrote some lyrics to the music, and the band Pitchfork was born. I think a lot of it was just he didn't know if he really wanted to or was up for or up for the challenge. I don't know, but as soon as he showed interest, it was like it was it was a no-brainer. You know, it's like slam dunk. Like, okay, we'll just do this. You know, and it wasn't until I started playing with Rick and Pitchfork that I was like actually kind of like, okay, this is. Although I was in, you know, kind of bands before that, that was kind of like the first real band that I was ever in, you know, where we rehearsed and it was a set lineup of people that didn't change every week and worked on a, a body of songs to play, you know, for people, so. Burn, 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 burn,
Between 1986 and 1990, Pitchfork released an EP called Saturn Outhouse and a full-length LP called Eucalyptus, both via the Nemesis label. Though around for a short time and mostly a regional phenomenon, Pitchfork was influential and well-regarded among their peers. According to Froberg, it's also possible that they inspired the name of a certain music blog. Oh, well, I mean, they stole our name. What can I say? Do you think... think Let's consider that. Yeah, I think they did. Do you think they They deliberately stole your name? I think they must have been aware of the band Pitchfork when they took the name, and, uh, and that... That in itself, you know, constitutes a theft to me. I think, I mean, it's like, I don't care. I really don't. So, I mean, it doesn't matter to me at all. And I have no, I bear no ill will towards Pitchfork. I'm not that familiar with it, really. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was the band's name. I think the band was known well enough by everyone at that time that, you know, that's, that's what I think. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have anything to back that up with. I don't have any proof, or, or uh, I don't have any. No one, no one's ever, you know, leaked anything to me. Like, oh, yeah, we stole your band. It's like, it's, and it's, it is a, it's not a band. It's a publication or a, a website or whatever. So it, it doesn't really matter. It's like, uh, I think yes, I think that they they were aware of the band Pitchfork, and uh, I don't know if they were inspired by the band Pitchfork, but they liked the name, so they took the name. Let the record show that this particular podcast, Creative Control, may or may not be named after a Hot Snake song. Of the same name. When I say may or may not, I mostly leaning towards may. When Ankrum left Pitchfork, Nick Frederick played bass in the band, but only for about a year or so. Don, the original bass player, had bailed. He moved to San Francisco, so we are already kind of on our on you know our second second leg, you know, with the new bass player who was Nick, who's a great bass player and a good friend, and was a great addition to the band. But it just seemed like you know I remember Joey was the drummer. He was and playing in a bunch of bands, and he was, you know, pretty busy. There wasn't necessarily, like, musical differences, but there was this, like, kind of, like, feeling that, like, kind of wanted to do something different. I think Nick was moving. I think the bass player was actually going to be moving to Sacramento with his girlfriend, maybe. I think that actually had a lot to do with it, and it was like, I'm, you know, don't want to get a third bass player. But yeah, I think that's actually what was, was, was maybe the main reason, yeah, Nick was going to move. And it just seemed like getting a third bass player was kind of like, I don't know, just seemed like, well, maybe just do something different. Froberg remembers some other internal differences that led to the end of Pitchfork. I think that the people in the band had different ideas about what should be done. The drummer was definitely more of an into uh, Joey, was more into hardcore and things like that. Things that uh, John and I didn't really like very much. And Don, no, he no, he quit. And then we had another bass player. It just kind of fell apart. It was like it, it just lost steam. And this is right around the time that John wanted to start, or was was doing Rocket from the Crypt. And uh, yeah, he wanted to do something different, something that was more contemporary, something that was less like less like fish work, more like Nightfall Man, something a little meaner. They were shredding. They were great. They were the best live band in San Diego, for sure. Really powerful, very enigmatic lead singer, quite a powerful voice and presence, and just a bone-crushing rhythm section and and Mike and Mark. I mean, the whole band was great, but they were just very impressive. If you don't trust John Reese, just know 
that by many accounts, Night Soil Man was one of the best bands San Diego has ever known, featuring a charismatic, confrontational frontwoman who goes by Rosebud. As John mentioned, Night Soul Man had an amazing rhythm section in bassist Mike Kennedy and drummer Mark Trombino. Mike Kennedy grew up in California's Bay Area and went to high school in Los Angeles. After graduating, he moved to San Diego. I had a friend that lived down here, and uh, he lived at the beach. And I'm like, oh, sure, I'll go live at the beach. And I had been down here a few times before, liked the area, liked the scene. It's still the formative years, you know. It's like I didn't know what I was, wanted to do or where I was going. I was, you know, 18, 19, went to school for a year out of high school, and, you know, did, that didn't work out so well. So I, uh, at that point, moved down here, and then uh, I always knew school would be in my future. It just wasn't, I wasn't ready for it at, as a teenager. Wanted to go see things and do things other than keep my head in the books, you know, that came later. Kennedy's parents had a reel-to-reel tape player, and when he thinks about listening to their mixtapes from the 60s, music by the Beatles and Beach Boys is playing in those early memories. But when he encountered his sister's record collection and Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin, he began to get seriously into music. From there, it was punk bands that actually led him to attempt to play bass himself at 18 years old. I mean, I was definitely a late bloomer. I don't consider myself some kind of radical bass player by any means. Music, I think, you know, probably to Rick as well, myself certainly, is playing something that is organic that you create that's not something that somebody else has done, you know? Like, I don't play a one four five style you know I, I don't take lessons and I don't learn a lot of other songs I'm not trying to sound different or whatever but it's just for me the enjoyment of music is creating something yourself or with the people that you're making music with so I don't think there's any rules or methods you have to practice to get something that you enjoy Mark Trombino grew up in Seal Beach in Orange County, California, where he says he had a pretty typical, uneventful childhood. Music was big for him as far back as he can remember. Uh, I was a, a band geek uh, in high school and, you know, and, and involved with music from a very, very early age and um, super supportive parents for music. When I was in um, high school and like my very first punk band, um, I played drums in it, but I did all this songwriting for some weird reason. And it was before I could really play guitar, I would write all this stuff on a piano. And I don't really play piano, but I could like dink around with like, you know, two fingers or whatever. And uh, we, I did like all our songs that way. It was stupid. And then um, I did eventually learn how to play guitar kind of and like bar chords or whatever. And um, I ended up playing guitar in some shitty punk band in high school and then bass in a band in college and you know I wasn't good at any of these things but I was competent enough and uh, you know with Nice Old Man I was like one of the songwriters and I became less and less of a songwriter as as the bands I was in got better and better I've always I've, I've never been into the, the drummers that like other drummers were into like people were always into like Neil Peart or someone like that it's like that was he was always looked up to and to me I never was really into it I liked really simple mechanical drummers 
you know, like, I don't even know the dude's name, but the dude who was, he was the drummer for Fear. Like, when I was a kid growing up, like, he was someone I looked up to because he was a machine. Trombino ended up going to the University of California, San Diego for music and eventually joined Mike Kennedy in the band Night Soil Man. Both Kennedy and Trombino have fond memories of their time in this band. It was both collaborative and a lot of input from Rosebud, who was the singer. She she had ideas, but it was still kind of a collaborative thing. I mean, I've been in three bands, and all three bands are pretty much what you come up with in the band room is, you know, somebody might have a, a germ of an idea, but, you know, and John certainly has had uh, a majority of starting ideas, but we kind of just let them grow playing. Sadly, Night Soil Man ended for personal reasons that neither Kennedy nor Trombino are completely comfortable discussing. It was really fucked up what happened. We were an awesome band. I, I really loved Night Soil Man, and, and, and that's... Playing with that band was like some of the, my favorite times in life, um, some of my favorite experiences, and probably the most band-like band I've ever been in, where I felt like I was in a band, like a, almost like a, you know, just super close friends and stuff. And I was pretty bummed that that one, that one ended. So first Pitchfork ends, and then Night Soil Man ends? What are you going to do? Well, luckily, according to both Froberg and Trombino, there was clearly some kind of kinship shared between the men in Pitchfork and Night Soil Man. Um, they were great, and we ended up hanging out a little bit because we played together, Pitchfork and Night Soil Man. And uh, when Pitchfork broke up, the first thing we wanted to do, John and I, because we still had sort of a, the same vision or whatever, or a similar vision. We wanted to get Mike and Mark to play with us, and I wanted to play guitar. That's pretty much how the band formed. I would see that. I would go to shows that they're playing, and they were literally like my favorite band in San Diego at the time, and I loved them. We'd play. They'd be at our shows. They'd play. Mike and I would be at their shows. You know, like we had just this mutual admiration for each other. So that's when I first, you know, learned about those guys. With both Pitchfork and Night Soil Man finished, new bands had the opportunity to fill a significant void in San Diego's music community. This is where Drive Like Jehu and Rocket from the Crypt come into the picture. And here's the new one from Rocket from the Crypt! There's a girl on my pillow Staring at me with those baby blues And she's whispering sweet nothing And they don't need nothing School of shit, I read it in a book School of shit, I read it in a book when Pitchfork ended, John Reese was ready for the change. It wasn't like, let's go start another band. It definitely wasn't like that. It was over, and I was right back to the bedroom, back to some alone time playing with myself and, and uh, writing songs and, and listening to records and going to shows and seeing bands play and going, fuck, you know, 
I think Rocket and Jehu kind of, I don't remember, but I think we started like right at the same time. I mean, Rocket might have started like a month earlier or something like that. You know, they kind of started right around the same time. One was a party band, you know, and a self-proclaimed party band. You know, we were going to play house parties. That's what that's what Rocket started out as, just a band that was only going to play house parties. And, you know, I was playing with my girlfriend's 15-year-old brother and some people, a guy that I went to high school with and, you know, some people from the neighborhood kind of saying, you know, it was just kind of like, it was a real weird, not weird, but it was a different, you know, nobody in the band knew each other. It, it, I was the only one that knew everybody, you know, whereas playing with Rick was, seems it seemed more like we were already on a certain trajectory, you know, we were already kind of going somewhere and we might not have really thought about it in those terms, but when we started playing, it was like, okay, let's keep going down wherever we were going, you know, let's keep going in that direction. Just right. Before reconvening with Froberg, Reese and Kennedy started hanging out and playing together and quickly discovered they shared similar musical tastes. When I got together with John, I remember one day we were cruising around in his old Toyota truck and I pulled out a tape, you gotta check this out. And I put it in and he's all, honor roll, I love honor roll. And that was like when we first clicked, you know, it was like, yeah, this is the kind of music that, you know, we're into. And that was, you know, Penn Rollins' guitar was something that we both like, this is cool stuff, you know. It wasn't long before Rick Froberg was brought into this new mix and the hunt for a drummer was on. Yeah, me and Mike and John all started playing around the same time because I think John and I had decided that we wanted to do something still. So I think we all we all kind of, yeah, me and we have, me, Mike and uh, John played and then uh, Chris Bratton was the first drummer and he didn't work out, and um, we naturally said, oh, let's, let's, let's ask Mark. And he wasn't doing anything, and, and uh, played with Mark a few times, and it was, it was great. Mike and John and Rick were playing, started playing together, and I was like, when I learned that, I was so jealous. I, like, I, didn't, I don't think I actually had met those guys yet. Like, I don't think I actually knew them. I just knew of them, or whatever. And I was just like, oh my God, you're playing with pitchfork that's I'm so jealous like I gotta get in on this you know let me in you know and somehow he he made it happen he like set up some sort of a rehearsal so I got to come in and and, like jam with him and it was fucking rad and I got to stay in so that's how that happens before I started playing with them they were playing with another drummer so they, they had like I don't know like five or six songs already so there was sort of already a style kind of established and it was it definitely wasn't Pitchfork. It was definitely post-Pitchfork, but it wasn't what Jehu finally became. And it was never, we never really discussed any direction or anything or like what we wanted Jehu to be. But I remember John actually was the one that turned me on to both Bastro and Slint. And those two things like majorly affected what I wanted Jehu to be. 
Expanding on what Trombino just said, none of the band members recall articulating what they wanted to accomplish with this new thing. But some bands, particularly Richmond, Virginia's Honor Roll, with their guitarist Penn Rawlings, were definitely beacons to these four dudes. We, we, we really like the Wipers, but, you know, I, I, that's, that's, you know, it's like a magic show. I couldn't, I couldn't play that kind of stuff. John could. Yeah, we really liked Honor Roll. It's just Penn's guitar playing. Uh, he's just one of the best guitar players ever. It's amazing. It's just, the, I like all their records. Um, I thought the singer was really great. He wrote these great lyrics, sort of disaffected, uh, I don't know, sort of fuck you lyrics that just really spoke to me. And yeah, they were, that was the biggest influence, I think, on our band. I mean, even in Pitchfork, Rick and I were massive, you know, honor roll fans. So I wanted to play like him, basically, you know, and uh, play music that was kind of like the way he played, I guess, you know, like, or at least felt, you know, made me feel the way, like, I felt when feel when I listen to his guitar playing. So, you know, this kind of music doesn't necessarily have a lot of soul in it, you know. It's not known. Let, let me rephrase that. It's not known for having a lot of soul, you know. And the way Pin plays, he's very soulful. He has a lot of soul. He plays with a lot of, you know, emotion and passion and personality. And he gets sounds out of the guitar I hadn't heard before. And uh, his approach to guitar playing, uh, for me at least, was, you know, was re revolutionary. You know, it, it made me listen to music differently. So his guitar playing is very personal. So I wanted to basically, like, play guitar like only I could, you know, do what I do and be myself and, and kind of treat the guitar like an extension of your body, you know? You know, like, it, as if you were singing and that's your voice and that's only your voice you know, play guitar that way. That's my voice, you know, it's the guitar. So that's kind of the way with Strive Like Jay, I started to kind of like approach guitar playing. I didn't do that as much in Pitchfork. I started doing that more in Drive Like Jay, and I started playing guitar a lot. Like, I mean, I was always playing all the time, but I would play just hours and hours every day, you know, by myself, just kind of just trying to immerse myself and trying to become one with the, with the wood and strings. Fully configured with an unspoken but clear vision, it was time for Drive Like Jehu to make their first record. They entered West Beach Recorders Studios with an engineer and producer named Donald Cameron, whom Reese had worked with before on Rocket from the Crypt albums. I think what really stuck out for me was the uh, just the guitar pyrotechnics that went into that record with uh, John Reese and... I mean, I just remember like recording those tracks and like just looking at him and just like, I mean, I've never seen a guitarist play like that. Like he just like that record. I mean, there was just a lot of music, but a lot of like, I mean, it was just pretty radical, even compared to the Rocket from the Crypt stuff. I mean, it was over the top musician wise. Yeah, it was cool. You know, everything was new. And, you know, as with most new bands, you kind of know what you don't want more than what you want, maybe. At least in my case, that was that was true. I think also being inexperienced, inherently you're going to get like, you know, some some kind of studio artifact is possibly going to play a bigger role in your sound than you would probably 
want to happen, you know, that at least down the road listening to it, you know. But that said, I remember it being really fun. It was a bit tedious, but that was just, you know, Donald was kind of that kind of, he is that kind of engineer, you know, he's, he listens to things very closely and he tends to get everything in the mic, you know, doesn't rely a lot on tons of equalization and stuff after the fact. And these were the days of obviously, you know, recording without, you know, computers and stuff. So, you know, recording live. But the only thing I can remember as I remember that John was doing a lot of, he had a lot of really crazy ideas. I think that he got from Bastro, which is like, you know, kind of like multi-layering of, of tracks, you know, like uh, trying to get this, this, this crazy sound um, using just like, you know, like a note here and a thing here. And I remember him getting like, really frustrated with the whole thing and like just, and just uh, leaving the studio in anger or going to sleep or something like that. And uh, I remember that we just, we just turned off all those overdubs and just, and just cranked his guitar the way it normally was. Um, because it sounded so good and it didn't need all that stuff. But I knew he was an amazing guitarist, but like the Drive Like Jehu stuff was just, it just seemed like it was just more over the top. I mean, Rocket from the Crypt was pretty over the top, but it was, you know, it was pretty melodic. It was kind of a little more pop. I mean, the Drive Like Jehu was, was uh, it was pretty extreme instrumentally. I mean, it was like, it was way non-commercial. I mean, not not that Rocket from the Crypt was commercial sounding, but Drive Like Jehu was really out there well i remember just donald just like you he, he would like he would tweak and obsess on things you know there was you you know and and i thank him for it because it was always you know for the better but you know sometimes you end up going around the hole trying to like chase chase something that's so elusive when you watch john like uh like like a song like bullet train to vegas or something like that that the riff on that it's such a great riff and we would just you know we just sit there and watch, watch him play, watch him go. Like Adam Jack or one of those. those like the riffs are so cool. Or I always thought they were, and I really enjoyed, you know, watching him do it. We, he took a long. John was really particular about his guitar sound. Took a long time to get that. Remember that. You know, and John Reese. You know, he never. About him, he never learned like bar chords. Like when he learned to play guitar, he didn't have anybody. He didn't learn from anybody else. Like he never learned bar chords, how to you know, like traditionally how you learn how to play guitars. You play the E position and then you go up one fret. And he didn't learn bar chords like that, so he just played like he just had his own style, his own technique that he like had no real, you know. Like I said, he'd never nobody had ever sat down and taught him how to play guitar. He just kind of learned it himself. So he like played stuff that nobody else could play. But he just made his own fingering, like the way he would finger the chords. He didn't finger it like in a traditional kind of manner. He just like so he, you know. But he was, you know, he he was very very skillful. He was very good. Just as Cameron appreciates what John Reese brings to the guitar, Mike Kennedy appreciated what Cameron brought to the proceedings as well. We had made a couple records with Night Soil Man, so I, I knew the process, um, but didn't really have somebody, you know, the, the, the caliber that, that Donnell was that uh, had, you know, the energy and was able to spark us on, you know, with, with, with the recording. So 
you know, it was definitely a good good experience. I really, what really, really stands out for me to me is the, I mean, just sitting next to John Reese recording those guitar tracks and just thinking, just looking at him and going, like, how the fuck is he doing that, man? It's like <laughs> I can barely, I can barely see, I can hardly even say, see his hands moving across the fretboard, and like, it's amazing. The whole the combination of the band, the, the different elements in the band were pretty were pretty remarkable. Of course, not everyone looks back on the first album sessions with fondness. Trombino was at UCSD studying music and had access to the school's recording studios and equipment. He spent a lot of time in there recording bands, including Night Soil Man and later Drive Like Jehu, learning how to produce and engineer records on his own. So working with Donald and anyone else really made him mancy. It was, for me personally, it was a little frustrating because I've always been sort of like very hands-on with recording and stuff and personally just I was I felt like I was just sort of shut out of a lot of it and um, so it was kind of frustrating for me like to have ideas and you know you're young and and you have ideas and like when you're when you're young you know your ideas are the best ideas or whatever and you're always right and it was frustrating not to feel like I was being heard or you know feel like I was kind of shut out of the, the, the process so at one point actually after my drums were done I bailed um, I think no during mixing or something like that I can't remember but I bailed I got so frustrated and I was such a baby about it I just left and then uh, they mixed it and it didn't turn out great so we did it again and, and I got to come back and be a part of that so, so in the end it, 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 I was happy with it but it was um, it was frustrating a little bit and that was my first I think that was my first time no I was going to say I thought it was my first time working with someone recording me but I had done a little bit of that before I, I hadn't done a lot of recording but I, for some reason I felt like I knew what I was doing yeah I'd like to listen sit back and listen to that record again I haven't heard it for a while but um, but we got a pretty good I mean I, I like the sounds I like the drum I like the drum sounds we got we got a pretty cool drum sound we got a good I remember the kick drum I mean, we got pretty good sounds on that record. And um, it was a fun record, definitely. So, Drive Like Jehu made their first record. After playing shows in San Diego and nearby cities, it was time to send their music out into the world.
A San Diego label called Headhunter, in association with Cargo Records, released the self-titled debut by Drive Like Jehu in 1991. By this point, the band was having a huge impact on fans and their fellow musicians, like Rob Crow. Anybody who was into that kind of thing understood that it was immediately a special, special thing. It was an amazing thing that we were all privileged to be alive at the time to witness. <laughs> the band's own perspectives on the external reception to their music vary slightly. Here's Mark Trombino's recollection. I personally didn't feel like it was like really all that well received. Like I know people liked it, but in San Diego we were like you know kind of a super group, and maybe I that made me think that like we should be <laughs> do better outside of San Diego. But you know we didn't do that great outside of San Diego. We didn't do that great outside of the U.S. We were just like a band, like, you know, a band that other bands liked or something, it seemed like. It likely helped that, according to Kennedy, people in the band's expectations about success were quite modest. Again, I would just go back to what the scene was with all of our friends and all of our bands. We liked all of our friends' bands. Our friends' bands liked, liked us, and, and, you know, we just kind of grew with that kind of camaraderie in, in San Diego that it was fun and Whatever happened with it is what whatever happened. Nobody, I don't think we expected anything or, you know, I could say like, yeah, it would be cool to do, you know, make a record and do this. But nobody really had big dreams of jumbo jets and what, what not, you know, and things like that. But we just wanted to have fun playing the music that we liked and hope people liked it, too. But the local reception did matter. And Froberg, for one, as the band's art director had to take some criticism a bit personally. People liked the band right away because people liked Pitchfork and, and people liked Night Slow Man in San Diego. So it was, it was for San Diego, which is kind of an isolated place, really. It, it, it was a super group for that, for, for San Diego. So we had, an, we had an audience immediately. We had uh, somebody offering to put our records out immediately. The only thing I remember that was weird is uh, when the record came out and like the local press saw the artwork and they were like, what, the, what is this? This is like... You're not representing our our town, and this is you know this. No one liked the artwork, <laughs> so I remember that. Um, but mostly the perception was all positive. Um, I it was almost always positive. We always always there's a couple of people who didn't like us, and certainly now there's lots of people who don't like us. But at the time we it was you know when it was contemporary thing when it was the '90s and stuff like that. It was sort of of the time. Now it's you know in hindsight it's like I don't know. It was, this is the band that started emo core or whatever. I don't know what the fuck people think, but yeah, I don't know. One of the most striking things about the CD version of the first Drive Like Jehu album was that the disc itself bore the inscription, CDs really fucking blow. This was in keeping with Big Black's 1987 CD compilation, which they dubbed the Rich Man's 8-track tape, and a message from Slint on the CD version of their 1991 album, Spiderland, that this recording is meant to be listened to on vinyl. John Reese explains his take on his own band's contribution to this messaging. Well, the anti-CD sentiment for me had everything to do with the reshuffling of the deck by the record companies who were selling you something. It was basically a way for them. Here's this new technology that, you know, supposedly better. It wasn't, but whatever. And you got to go and buy yourself. Like when, when, when Pitchfork, we had a CD out. I didn't have a CD player. You know what I mean, I, I couldn't hear it, listen to our to our CD because I didn't have a CD player, and it just seemed so ludicrous that now you're gonna have to go. They wanted everyone to go and buy all these records that they already own all over again, 
on this new device because of this new technology is better, you know? And I think a CD is better than a crappy record player and a scratched up copy of, of, of a record, maybe for some people. I mean, that's, that's debatable even, you know, but if you're looking for pristine sound, maybe a CD sounds better than a crappy record player and a scratch record, you know, but when you think about CDs, when they first came out, I think they were immediately like 13, 14, you know, they were like almost twice as much as a record just right from the get go. So just the whole thing just seemed totally bogus. As for the guy who included it in the packaging, Froberg knows exactly why CDs fucking blow. Because they do blow, and they still blow, and they, and they and they they've always blown, and 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 now thank God they're being phased out. I think they're they're rotten little crappy things, breakable pieces of crap. I've always, and also like you know I like artwork. I want to I want to I like the big art. I like the the fetish the. The vinyl and the whole thing. I, I just like I just like records. I don't I don't like uh, little CDs. I just never liked them. Beyond being a lion of a singer with a cool way with words, Froberg is also a well-respected visual artist. Like most of his talents, he simply tapped into something he was interested in. Uh, I just, I just, just always liked it, and I've always drawn. You know, that, that uh, I've always wanted to do artwork, and so I just like music. I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm untrained. I don't have a, I've never been to art school or, or anything like that. I just uh, started doing it. The first art thing I did was a fanzine. Uh, that was my first punk rock thing. I did a fanzine, and um, you know, I got really into laying it out and I doing illustrations for it. You know, just just the whole whole graphic art thing. And because of doing this, and I, and I spent like a dollar an issue getting it printed on semi gloss paper and the whole thing. Unfortunately, when it came to time to sell it, I was like, you know, I went to a show and I was like, do you want a dollar for that? And I just I just, I just gave up because I, I couldn't sell anything. That was the part that didn't appeal to me at all. But yeah, I got, and I got a job at a, our friend O helped me get a job at like a skateboarding magazine. So I learned commercial, real commercial art techniques and stuff like that. So I could set up an artboard and send it to the printer. So uh, it was natural that I would do the artwork. And I, I wanted to, I wanted the band to have an aesthetic. I tried to choose things that, you know, it's like, whatever, it's all silly, it's all whatever, punk rock crap. But I mean, it's like, I tried to choose things that, that would have a, some sort of vibe that would, that would say something that would, that would make the record look like it was a good record. It's like punk rock. You just get involved with everything. And whatever whatever you can you lend your, to the cause, you, you do. For every San Diego citizen angry about the Drive Like Jehu artwork, there was probably also someone, like Interscope Records A&R woman Anna Statman, who lived in Los Angeles and found the album striking enough to take home. There used to be a Rhino record store down the street from the office, and I would go to it all the time. Well, I went to Rhino Records all my life anyway. Uh, and I saw the CD, and the cover had reminded me, actually, of another band that I had signed back in the day, Geffen, and it remind, the artwork was similar. And so that looks interesting. I'm going to pick it up. And I just immediately thought that was great, great stuff. Just wonderful. Loved it. So I actually knew Jay who before I knew Rocket, before I knew of Rocket. 
1992, Merge Records, which at the time was ostensibly run by Super Chunk's Laura Balance and Mac McCoggan, released a Drive Like Jehu single for the songs Bullet Train to Vegas and Hand Over Fist. The songs were recorded by Trombino at UCSD and are fan favorites. According to Reese, working with Mac and Laura was a no-brainer. Mac and Laura were really, you know, super supportive of other bands and other labels and all, you know, what was happening. I mean, what's still happening, they are. I mean, they're still very much in tune with what's going on. But then it was like, definitely seemed like there was this, this network, peers all over the country, people doing similar things, listening to similar kinds of music, getting in vans and driving out off into the wilderness. So yeah, we played some shows with them and they liked the band and they asked if we wanted to do a single with them. So we went in with Mark and I think it was, you know, it was the first time Mark had recorded the band and went into a studio there at UCSD where Mark was going to school and recorded at the studio there on an 8-track. Train has special significance for fans of the band. Its kick-ass song and the out-of-print merge single is a collector's item now, but perhaps most significantly in the post-Jehu band Hot Snakes, which featured both Froberg and Reese, the song was frequently played live. Uh, it's a short blast, and the Hot Snakes is more of a short blast kind of band, so we, you know, we figured, why not? And at the time, we didn't think there was gonna be ever going to be a driver Jehu again, so we figured, why not? Well, it's a cool song. Play it. People would always ask about Drive Like Jehu, you know, whatever your previous band is. People always wanted to know about that band. Uh, so we played a few songs, and we played Luau because it's fun to play. But it definitely wasn't the same as it is now. When Drive Like Jehu does Luau or Bullet Train, it definitely sounds the way it's supposed to. <laughs> it seems like a good time to discuss Rick Froberg's work as a songwriter. Reese is credited with writing the words to the first album's Step On Chameleon, which is a compelling song. The rest of Drive Like Jehu's lyrics were pretty much penned by Froberg, a precise, sharp, angry, witty, questioning writer. At the same time, because his songs are rather enigmatic, it's interesting to find out what his bandmates make of them. For one, I think he's really funny, and I don't think a lot of people get that at all. You know, from from his lyrics, I think um, they're <laughs> they're pretty funny, and uh, I don't know how to characterize it. You know, because for me, it's like. It's just him, you know what I mean? It's like, that's who he is. I've never been someone that was into lyrics, like, um, other than, like, Rice of Spring or something like that. I think that Rice of Spring is probably the only band that I actually, like, gave a shit about their lyrics. Because they, and it was probably just because I read them at a time when I was, had a broken heart or something. And uh, uh, it just hit home. But, like, lyrics have never really, not, I wouldn't say not mattered, but, like, 
it's n- never been something I focused on. I've always focused on just music and sonics and stuff like that. And uh, the lyrics have always kind of been secondary to that. So with there's still lyrics. I don't even know what Rick is singing or what, I don't know what the songs are about. Like any of them. I don't know what any of the songs are about. I don't half of the words. I don't know. I'm the, 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 the worst, the last person you should ask about like that. I have no, no idea. I've got my kind of my own ideas on, on what he means with stuff, but I think that's probably a better question to ask him. All I can say is that I think his lyrics are amazing. I knew that his lyrics were going to be amazing before I even heard him when we were playing because I'd heard his lyrics in Pitchfork. And I don't think any of us ever thought that there would be anything other than amazing. And so as we write songs, we, lyrics were like the last thing, but I don't think John or Mark or myself were ever like worried that, that they would be there. You know, We knew they would be there because we knew what Rick could do and we would knew that it would come and that we would be stoked on it. And we were, you know, playing the music, playing the guitars and the drums and stuff is, is one thing, but like the lyrics is like, I think I don't write lyrics, so I can't say this for sure, but it's definitely a personal thing um, more so than the rest. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's probably easier would be easier for most people or most musicians to get up and play an instrument, but for them to get up and speak thoughts is a little bit more intense. It's the poetry to the words that, that, that like, you know, if you took a song, I won't use the Jehu song, I'll use a pitchfork song like burn pigs burn. And you look at what he writes in that song and you can conjure images like crazy images from those things that he's saying in that song and in any of his songs it's that, that that's what it is for me it's like they're not just lyrics saying one thing or another it's like they're lyrics that make me conjure images of what he's saying and that just adds another layer to what you like about his lyrics i think it's great i still think it's great i like his perspective i you know i don't think there's anyone on this planet that I identify with more musically in terms of our taste, you know, that doesn't mean that we all like, you know, we like every, you know, we're identical in our taste, but I think we both gravitate towards really similar sounds and songs. So we speak, you know, the same language that way and we're good friends, but I'm also managed to really be continually kind of like really stoked and impressed by his, his talent and his creativity, you know, and what he could do. It's uh I'm always surprised and impressed, and and it really, I just feel like so many. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many times it's like, man, my favorite part of the song or, or some, you know, something, uh, let's say I write a song, but like the favorite, my favorite part of that song, what it becomes is like kind of what he's doing so many times. I really uh, feel that, um, we're, we're in sync in that in that way. So it sounds cheesy, but I do I do think it's kind of like pretty lucky, you know, because like if I never met met him, I wouldn't have I would have missed out on a lot of on so on some of my favorite things I've been a part of, you know. Froberg himself is a bit cagey about his writing, and understandably so. I think most of the songs have to do with just fear of the outside world and fear of the things around me and fear of what's to come and there's, there's a lot of fear involved with, with uh, all the lyrics do you know where that emanates from I mean psychologically even yeah I do but I'm not going to tell you <laughs> <laughs> okay that's fair but it's obviously a deeply personal place yeah this is a deeply personal thing like uh, standing up there and singing some song is a pretty personal thing it's, it's, uh, it, it all comes from a personal place and I don't know if people relate to it or whatever but it, there's, it, there's definitely a lot of negativity and a lot of fear and, and all that stuff The story of Drive Like Jehu will always be connected with Rocket from the Crypt. John Reese had both bands going simultaneously, and the story in circulation is that when Anna Statman and Interscope Records expressed an interest in signing Rocket from the Crypt, Reese insisted that Drive Like Jehu be part of the deal. It turns out that this isn't really true. It's a very uninteresting story, but it is, it's, I'm always correcting people because people assume that's what happened. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, Riley Jason was the band that had interest first, way before Rocket from the Crypt. Rocket from the Crypt wasn't even on anybody's radar, really. It was Riley Jason that had interest from Interscope first, and then after Interscope, from other labels. And it wasn't until people started getting a bit more um, interested and really kind of asking questions that they even heard about rocket and the affiliation with that band so it's not annoying because it's such a boring story right. you know it, it's not really an interesting piece of information who cares you know on the whole major label thing it's like i mean there's a whole movie about san diego bands that just basically focuses on that and it's like that is that is not even a footnote in anything that i've that i consider in, in any part any part of my life you know that's less like who gives a fuck Right. has nothing to do with music or, or art or shredding or anything. <laughs> it does, having fun, it doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's like a label someone who puts out your fucking records, you know? Uh, Interscope has some pretty cool people working there. Like Anna, Anna the person who is our A&R person, um, Anna Statman, work, you know, like work at Slash Magazine and stuff like that. She was pretty cool. And she liked... I mean, she's friends with the Clawhammer guys and stuff like that, and you know they like weird stuff. And um, and she was the person who brought the band or brought the band to the label. So and we went to we went to a bunch of other labels, and actually the rest of the labels were more interested in Rocket from the Crypt because it had more commercial potential and blah blah blah. blah. 
After being drawn to the artwork on the band's first album, Statman would try to go to see Drive Like Jehu and then Rocket from the Crypt whenever she could. She says it was more fun to drive to San Diego from Los Angeles to see shows because the A&R scene was hyper-competitive at the time and she had more anonymity outside of L.A. and could find really edgy artists to sign to Interscope, which was then a fledgling label overseen by industry heavyweight Jimmy Iovine. She loved both bands a lot. Well, Drive Like Jehu at that time sounded unlike anybody else at that time in, on the West Coast. There, there just wasn't anybody doing that, what they were doing at that time, and they're such a great band. And it's just so unique, so wonderful. I just really liked it, and I still do. I still listen, <laughs> I still listen to the music all the, a lot. I still really like it. It might be a little, you know, in retrospect now, when I listen to it, and then I'll put on some other bands that they are similar to, I can hear it, but it's, when, you're, when, you're, when it's right then and right there in your face, I, did, it, I don't always make the connection. John was in both bands, so there were a lot of people that wanted to sign Rocket from the Crypt, and I think John genuinely knew that, because I had really approached him, I probably on Jehu. He knew that I knew Jehu. He knew that I really liked Jehu and that I was familiar with them first, before Rocket, actually. So that might have put an edge um, for me. And Interscope was still early days at the time, so they were trying, I think Jimmy was trying to make his mark. So he was letting people do, get away with crazy deals, just doing crazy deals all the time, couldn't care less. I don't recall, uh, you know, if it was one of those things where if you sign Jehu, J- Rocket, you have to sign Jehu. I would imagine that, it, that that was the case. I'll tell you what else. At that time, Ted Field was still involved with, with Interscope, and I know he also actually really liked Jehu, too. And I think that gave John, they gave that more validity to Interscope than some of the other labels who were just in it because somebody else wanted it, which is what was happening at that time. And I guess it would still happen today. Well, Interscope was new, and they were just trying to, to sign bands that, would draw. I'm sure that in Interscope's mind, they figured that Jehu was an, a, a band magnet, much like Sonic Youth was to Nirvana for Geffen. And I think that there were signings, a lot of signings at Interscope like that, and I think that they expected my signings to be that. According to Froberg, John's dual responsibilities didn't phase Drive Like Jehu, beyond causing some scheduling conflicts. Not much. We were, we were all friends. It didn't really matter. It, it's a uh... We had to compete with that band for John's attention. That's it. And that was, that was frustrating sometimes. And that's probably one of the reasons why the band stopped, because Rockets got a lot more attention. People mostly liked them better. Uh, they did a lot more touring. They, um, they were just, you know, kind of a more of a commercial band. They were getting more of a push. And um, the, the relationship between the bands was great. We, we used to go on each other's tours and all that stuff. It was a you know, big group of friends. Trombino remembers the Rocket Jehu dynamic being a bit more intense. I loved Rocket from the Crypt, and, but it, at first it was like, you know, I, I always felt like Traveling Jehu was the real band, and Rocket from the Crypt was the, the kind of fun party band, you know, and like it was sort of like the secondary band or whatever, you know, and, and Jehu was the real quote, that those are air quotes, you know, band, and but pretty soon after. You know, both bands were going. It was obvious that Rocket was the more popular of the two, <laughs> you know, and deservedly so. I mean, they were fucking awesome. But I always had this sort of like, eh, you know, sort of animosity towards Rocket because it took away from Drive Like Jehu. You know, for John, it was great because he could be busy all the time. He's he's so prolific and so talented and needs to have like multiple things going on. I had only Drive Like Jehu, so like 
when we were down because Rocket had to record or tour or something like that, it was just sort of like, well, now what? You know, like there's three of us just kind of like sitting around doing nothing. And it just, it kind of, from a completely um, selfish standpoint, was, was, it was a bummer for me. Um, and I was jealous too. I was jealous of Rocket's popularity and, you know, um, I was jealous of like how fucking good they were. I'm not proud of how I felt about Rocket at the time, but it was definitely a love-hate kind of thing. Anna, the A&R person from Interscope, that, that she was the very first major label person to express any sort of interest in either band, and it was Drive Like Jehu that she was interested in. And that her, it was her interest that started that whole, not feeding frenzy, but whatever, you know, like interest in both bands. Um, Anna expressing interest in Jehu brought attention to Rocket to the major labels and like almost overnight, you know, like immediately as soon as anybody expressed any interest in either band, it was like Rocket was the one that like they were interested in really because Rocket was the one that was going to had any potential of any commercial success. And obviously no one other than a real true music fan would be interested in drive like Jehu. So it, it started, it definitely started out as, as Jehu, but only because one person and only for like probably, you know, 48 hours or something like that. Because it quickly turned into a Rocket from the Crypt thing. And, and Interscope signed Drive Like Ju because of Rocket. It didn't start out that way, but they, it, I don't believe they would have actually gone through signing both bands if Rocket wasn't involved. As far as Kennedy is concerned, the deal with Interscope has been overblown in the story of the band, particularly since their experience was relatively good as far as small bands working with bigger corporations go. The major label part of it, you know, I didn't care about whether or not if it was us or Rocket or both of us or neither of us got signed to the label, whatever, that didn't matter. It was just kind of a progression in, in where we where we were going with music and, and people approaching you, you know. But once you get into the major label thing, it kind of, I think, sours the whole thing. Just you end up doing things that, oh, the label thinks you should do this or that. Not that we would ever do anything like that musically. Um, we do our own thing, but that's like, you know, go here, go there kind of stuff. And, and it kind of saps the fun out of it. In the end, the deal with Interscope went down and both Drive Like Jehu and Rocket from the Crypt began working with the label. I remember when, when we were on the conference room together and they had signed because it, was, it coincided with Clinton's inauguration or Clinton's win, something like that. But I remember like we were all celebrating like, yay, Clinton's president and we're going to sign Rocket. The difficulty I had was convincing the bands to come to me and and to wait it out while they were talking to all the other labels and doing the getting wine and dine and the dog and pony from everybody else, but not from the support from the label. The label really, really wanted to sign them. As Kennedy recalls, there were certain provisions in the Drive Like Jehu contract that were highly unusual at the time. For instance, they never made any videos. We specifically had it in our contract that we did not have to do one, which was kind of unheard of. We were able to pretty much have complete artistic say on the music with the record, with the major. That was the good thing about it. They let us do whatever we wanted in terms of artistic freedom. We didn't have to do videos. We didn't have to submit demos, you know. They got the record, it was done. That was it. Hey, 
As Drive Like Jehu began working on songs towards their next record, Yank Crime, different sounds and bands began to influence them. In Trombino's case, he became obsessed with Slint and their 1991 album, Spiderland. I never thought they were the biggest band in the world, but they were definitely the band that influenced me more than any other band, I think, before or since. Like, Slint changed my life. And I know that, like, no one gave a shit about Slint. I knew about Slint after the fact, even. I think they were gone by the time I learned about them. And that didn't stop them from not only influencing how I wanted Jehu to be and like let's make these songs 10 minutes long you know let's draw everything out what you know like that was my push like let's just make everything longer and more dramatic and louder and crazier and you know like just more 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 um, but it also made me want to make records like when I heard Spiderland I was like holy shit drums can sound like this like this is possible like you can have like drums that sound like drums actually amazing like I want to do this and so it really like I'm sincere when I say that record changed my life. Like, it really did make a huge impact on me. Drive Like Jehu's next batch of material seemed like a natural progression, but there was definitely a shift in their approach to capturing the songs. They worked again with Donald Cameron, engineering the sessions at West Beach, but Trombino oversaw the recording of the songs Luau and Sinews at a studio called Big Fish. Now, Trombino went on to produce, engineer, and mix records by the likes of Jimmy Eat World, Blink-182, The Moffats, Pinback, the Wonder Years, and Change of Heart, among many, many others. So, as Reese suggests, Trombino definitely has studio chops. Yeah, Mark's really good. I mean, he's not only a great engineer and record producer, but he has the, or at least had, the kind of qualities necessary to be good at that, that kind of work. You know, you need to be detail-oriented. You need to be able to assimilate with certain technologies and, and equipment, make it work to get the most out of it. And you need to have good ears. And uh, Mark has all those qualities, you know, so it was really cool to have someone in the band record the record. I think the reason why the record came out as good as it did is, you know, obviously it's because Mark did it.
Reese also notes why the band's sound seemed to be heading in a different direction. For me, I was really into you know the longer songs. It's really into um, Noi, you know the band Noi, you know, specifically the song Negative Land. Really, really loved that song to this day, and a lot of the German kind of experimental music was was kind of creeping in. And um, you know we were listening to a lot of contemporary music too. I'm still listening to stuff like Black Flag, you know, on occasion. I'm still listening to bands like Bastro and still listening to Honor Roll and stuff like that. But for me, I was like kind of getting more into just kind of some noise, you know, and extending things a bit. And then also the band was, you know, pretty democratic. So a lot of times when, you know, you have four people all giving their input and contributing to a song, a lot of times that will result in having longer songs because everybody needs to be represented. So. As far as Froberg is concerned, of the band's two albums, he prefers their work on Yank Crime. It's just natural. I mean, if you just want to, you know, want to get rid of the things that you don't like and emphasize the things you do. I thought I, th- I think that record is much more uh, played through, and not, there's less there's less quirky little doinky things everywhere. It, it, it's not uh, it's not being filled up with stuff as much. The songs are, have more of a, an arc and a, a, a beginning and an end and a, and a flow. I don't know. <laughs> I, I definitely like it better than the, than the first one. When Trombino discusses Yank Crime, he sounds immensely proud, but also still somewhat weary from the experience of making it. And it was my first real, my first real mix, I think, um, in a real studio. And I struggled like I've never struggled before, like mixing that thing. And that studio was kind of a weird, I don't know, I've always had trouble with low end. And that's why that record kind of sounds a little thin. It's not easy. Anytime I've tried to mix or record myself, it's been really difficult. So sonically, I think that's why that turned out the way that it did. As far as like the songs and stuff, and and like I, I, I attribute it to all of us falling in love with like all those same bands, like the, you know, Slint and Bastro and Sonic Youth and stuff like that. I wanted this record to be larger than life. I wanted it to be some sort of an opus or something. Like I didn't want just a collection of songs. I wanted the songs to be big and meaningful and dramatic. And yeah, because I mean, I was going to I was going to music school, so I was used to like everything being like orchestral and dramatic and stuff like that and I was listening to this like slint and whatever music Sonic Youth where it was like big long crazy noisy songs and I just that's what I wanted for Drive Like J.U. so that was definitely my push I think John and Rick were more into like the shorter stuff Um, and I was never satisfied with that I just I was always pushing for longer noisier you know let's just feedback for a long time let's just make all this noise for a long time you know like all that kind of stuff and I think it was frustrating. I've always, and I don't know, I don't, you've spoken to them, and I've never actually spoken to them about it, but like, I always felt like it was me pushing so hard to like make everything crazy and long and dramatic that it was sort of a bummer to those guys. Like, I felt like I made it, I made songwriting difficult because I was never satisfied with just simple things. I always wanted everything to be overblown, <laughs> blown out of proportion, whatever. And I think I made it hard for them to write. And I always wondered, like, if that was sort of the cause of the end of Jehu. Because I've, I've read things where John said that it was just got too hard to write or it wasn't fun anymore or something like that. And I, I couldn't help but, like, take it a little personally. Like, maybe that was, that was me, you know, doing that, making it not fun. While Trombino sees confusion in the band's past, 
Kennedy is more definitive about how Drive Like Jehu arrived at its sound on Yank Crime. It was just the natural progression that we were going to. I don't think it was anything that we felt had to be done one way or another. It was just us growing with what we did together as a band. It ended up being more Drive Like Jehu because it was Drive Like Jehu doing it the whole way. Trombino taking a more hands-on role in the production of Yank Crime, another new thing for the band was featuring a guest vocalist. Rob Crow of bands like Pinback, Thingy, and Heavy Vegetable sings during the chorus of the song Luau. I was always a big Pitchfork fan before Charlie Jehu. Um, I came in several times, different situations and stuff, like even before Rick was in the band and John was singing and and uh, one and I and I worked at this health food store, and uh, and I had just gotten a job. And one day, Rick was in line, and there wasn't many people about. Like, oh my god, I love all your know, stuff. And he's like, Oh yeah, we're doing this new thing, uh, and we're excited about it. Yeah, because I was at the last Pitchfork show. But he was saying, Here's this new thing, but it's different. And I'm playing guitar, and and after a few, while, he he handed me a demo of the thing, and it was an old tape and it was all like third generation or something and it was all <laughs> but of course it was amazing and it took me a while to you know figure it out but but yeah I got to see the I went to the first show it was really awesome and they were just turning you know they were the one of the greatest live bands I've ever seen to this day totally amazing especially when you know they get a little bored or cranky then it gets really good because they start experimenting with things, and I love that kind of stuff. But uh, one thing led to another, and eventually I, I was roommates with uh, with Rick for a while. And after he had moved out for a bit, um, I don't know, they were working on the second record, and uh, he was like, "Can you come to the studio tonight and sing something?" I'm like, "Sure," you know, like one of my favorite bands of all time. I think, yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> I think he was just around. I, I, uh, he's an old friend, you know, and uh, I think I just asked him to do it. And it was like, I said something like, oh, I'm going to come down and hang out at the studio, come down and hang out and check it out. So he did, and uh, he, had, you know, he was there, so he didn't sing on that. And I was very, very, very nervous, and I didn't know what it was going to be before I got there, and I wasn't sure how Rick wanted me to do it. 
but when I was there, uh, you know, cause I don't I drive, I had a friend drive me and, uh, I was just, and it was just, uh, like Mark and Rick and I, and, and tra- my friend Travis had driven and, uh, they had a lot of caffeine, cocoa bean candies <laughs> there. And I was just trying to like keep from freaking out. And I, and I ate a bunch of those and, uh, I had like three King Cobras, which was this terrible 32 ounce bottle of malt liquor that uh, you could get for 99 cents at the time. And I came in and Rick told me what to do and I did it and hoped it was good. And I was super nervous. And, you know, of course, immediately think I could, I could have done better, but it was, it was over by then. And as we're leaving, uh, as soon as we, I got out of the gates of where the studio was, I, we had to pull over and I just threw up everywhere in the bushes. Because <laughs> I'm so nervous. needed a, a second voice on it, a second vocal. That was different from John. Uh, personally, I was always writing strange vocal interaction music, uh, especially around the time with the uh, vegetable on counterpoint, as weird as I can make it. So maybe that might have had something to do with it, but I wouldn't profess to understand why I got to do it, but I sure was thankful and that I got to, you know, be on one of my favorite records by one of my favorite bands. It was just nuts.
By the time Yank Crime was completed, Mark Trombino was very happy to be in Drive Like Jehu. It was the most amazing experience making a record I've ever had, and I've made a lot of records. Like, I've been making records for 25 years, and I've never had a similar experience, and it was fucking magic. It was the best. Like, Drive Like Jehu did not submit demos to the label. We didn't, like, nobody from Interscope heard a, a note of what we were doing until the record was recorded, mixed, and mastered. Like, we literally, the first time that anyone from Interscope heard, like, no one even visited the studio. Like, the first time anyone heard anything from Yank Crime was after we picked up the master from Bernie Grumman, you know, mastering, and brought it over to Anna's, our A&R person's house. Like, that was the first, she was the first person to hear it, and it was done. Like, we handed off, here's the record, it's done, here's all the artwork, here are all the ads. Here's all the posters. Here's everything. Okay. You know, like, we did everything ourselves. And Interscope, I mean, it was... They were a major label. Like, that's not how major labels work. And I don't know. For better or worse, from band standpoint, it, it didn't get any better. You know, they just gave us money. We made a record. We handed it over to them. They put it out. Done, you know? Unfortunately, some of Trombino's excitement was tempered by the fact that the intertwined fates of Drive Like Jehu and Rocket from the Crypt were proving to be detrimental to both bands. Drive Like Jehu would tour behind Yank Crime, but the trek took its toll. For me, I was busy, but I would have made time to do Drive Like Jehu, of course. You know, I loved doing the band. It just seemed like after the tour that we did, it was kind of like one of those things where it didn't seem like the band was really going to do that anytime soon again. It wasn't like we came back and it felt like doomsday, but it just seemed like it didn't seem like there was really any kind of like desire to go back out on the road and continue and, and to keep playing in front of people. And for Rocket, it was like, it was very easy to tour. You know, it's a larger band, but everybody really enjoyed it and wanted to do it and wanted to, to play as much as possible. So I think for me, it was hard to like, it's like wanting to do both, but you know, if you're going to do something, you kind of have to do it full on. So I could have done both things full on, but it just seemed like with Drive Like Jehu, it just seemed like um, there was definitely a breather needed after that tour. And, you know, you, I'm curious for the other people what their perception is, you know, if it, if it was a Rocket thing, because it probably, you know, it, it, Rocket from the Crypt definitely plays, plays a role, but it wasn't because Rocket was popular or Rocket had all this momentum. Rocket had to create momentum and Rocket had to, you know, we toured a lot. You know, we toured for three years, I was home for three months out of three years. You know, we were gone all the time. And it was trying to create momentum and trying to create something where you had something kind of going on. And seeing how, you know, kind of hard we worked to do that. I don't know if Driver Jehu could have ever really done that. You know, I don't think the people in the band really wanted to do that. But, you know, I don't want to speak for other people. Maybe they did, but it just didn't seem like there was really that kind of, like, desire to do that at the time. What, what happened was... You know, there was so much excitement about Rocket from the Crypt, but instead of Rocket making a record, Jehu made a record. And that took some time, you know? So we had to make our record, and then we toured. And by the time that wound down, all that excitement for Rocket had sort of waned a little bit, but not to John, you know? And I think he was like, you know, maybe frustrated. I've never talked to him about this, so I don't know. But I, I feel like, and I understandably, I think he probably was like a little frustrated, like, that all that excitement over Rocket had sort of waned a little bit and 
he really wanted to see Rocket go and, and get its shot. And I think that, you know, Jay sort of like took a little away because we were just, it was just the timing of it, you know, just like it was just our turn to make a record when it, if, if Rocket had made their record first, I think it might have been better for, for everybody, um, for Jehu too, um, because John could have done it, he could have gone through that whole process and then he would have still been excited about Jehu, done our record and maybe, you know, things might have continued the way they had, but I think just because of the, the order that things happened, John wanted to concentrate exclusively. We had, we had a band meeting, like he was like, Jehu had finished our thing and, he was, and John like told us that he wanted to concentrate 100% on Rocket. He didn't say that he was quitting Jehu or that Jehu was over or anything, but it was just like, right now, for the foreseeable future, I'm going to devote everything to Rocket from the Crypt. I think that's what makes me think that it was sort of like this frustration because of not getting a chance to work on Rocket because of Jehu that was part of that. I mean, that was probably part of the reason. And I think also, you know, the other stuff I alluded to before about just the songwriting not being fun. I mean, Rocket is 100%, well, seems a lot more fun. I mean, John has all the control in Rocket. He writes the songs and they play the songs. Um, where in, in Jehu, it's, you know, it's, there's four guys there that all have opinions and pretty strong opinions. I mean, Rick has very strong opinions. I have very strong opinions. Mike has opinions. So like, um, it's a much, much different experience and I can see why it wouldn't be as fun writing with Jehu as, as, you know, Rocket. You, you can, with Rocket, he can just write tons of songs and they're all great and it's done. You know, as soon as he writes them, they're done. Whereas with Jehu, it's like he can have an idea and bring it in and then it's like it gets put through the ringer or whatever. And not all ideas make it through. And that's got to be frustrating too. And then you've got me just being like, no, more, more, this, more, that. You know, like that's got to be frustrating. So I don't know. The, guy, the, the group, it's a group of really disparate people and, and uh, it was a very democratic thing. And I think that uh, for John especially, he had this, this other venue to express himself where he was sort of in charge which is which is great because you know he was doing a great job at that and, and I think that uh, it was very you know it took a long time for Java Jacob to write a song whereas Rocket you know could write a couple songs in a, in a day you know minimum I think it was something that he was enjoying more at the time and we kind of kind of seemed just like he was enjoying it more and you know the band their band was getting a lot more attention um, they were touring a lot more and he was gone a lot more, and we just we just all kind of grew apart. You know, we never did. We never said that this is it. You know, it was just like months turned into a year, and then after a year, I think it was just kind of like, well, you know, that's it. You know. Drive Like Jehu stopped playing together, each of the band members went on to do different things. Mike Kennedy briefly played in a band called Corrugated, and then went back to school to earn a chemistry degree, and he still works in that field today. Of all the members, music was definitely part of his past when Drive Like Jehu ended. I mean, we never did break up, like, we're not going to do this anymore. It was just like, 
you know, back and forth between Jehu and Rocket with tours and records. Rocket went on theirs, and we just kind of never got it back together again. And in the hiatus where we weren't playing, I decided that I needed to go back to school. That took up my time. Mark was starting to do recording. Rick ended up going to New York. So it's not like it was anything other than just life and getting older. I think we all wanted to. We just felt that we were kind of going in different directions, you know, in our own lives. John Reese carried on with Rocket from the Crypt, started a label called Swami Records, and formed other bands like Back Off Cupids, The Sultans, and The Night Marchers. Not too long ago, he spent some time in the studio with Toronto's Mets, where he appeared on a new song of theirs, and they backed him up on a new song of his. Rick Froberg moved to New York to concentrate on his art and worked as a printmaker as well. He and Reese reconvened to play in an amazing, amazing band called Hot Snakes for a little while. They put out three perfect albums, if I might say. Three perfect albums. I'll say it again. Then Froberg went on to be part of a really cool outfit from Brooklyn called Obits. Unfortunately, they recently broke up, and uh, that sucks. Froberg's still living in New York, while the other members of Drive Like Jehu live in California. Mark Trombino went on to be an in-demand producer, but he didn't play music of his own all that much. When the prospect of renting or building his own studio became financially challenging, he decided to make good on a previous idea he'd had by opening a vegan donut bar called Donut Friend in Los Angeles' Highland Park neighborhood, making it the most famous thing that anyone has ever heard about from Highland Park. The Donut Friend shop features made-to-order items like chocolate from the crypt, drive-like jelly, fudge gazi, the promise ring, and other punk band puns. And the business has been so successful that Trombino plans to open a second location. Speaking with Trombino, it's clear still that the end of Drive Like Jehu was devastating for him. It was a huge bummer to me. Like, I I loved being at Drive Like Jehu. Being in Drive Like Jehu, you know, gave me an identity, you know? Like, I was the guy, I was the drummer at Drive Like Jehu. I loved being the drummer at Drive Like Jehu. Um, I didn't love touring that much, so I didn't miss that part of it. But just making music and playing shows and being in a band, I missed. I mean, I'm so grateful for being in Jehu because it gave me a career. But yeah, when, when, when we stopped playing, you know, we tried, me, Rick and Mike tried to play without John just to, you know, kind of keep things going. But it was, it just wasn't the same and seemed kind of sad. So it didn't really last very long. I was super bummed. I really missed it. I missed it for years and years. And especially bummed when Hot Snakes started because it sort of like was the, the for me, the, the sort of confirmation of my, all my fears. Like, oh, they, Rick and John, actually enjoyed playing together. They didn't enjoy playing with me. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, oh, Hot Snakes is Drive Like Jehu minus me. But that's why it's not. But that's how it felt. Like, like it just confirmed all my, like, suspicions. Like, that those guys didn't like, you really didn't like playing with me and didn't like writing with me. And that my, my, um, constant you know need for drama and for bigger 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 you know longer louder was one of the reasons that Jehu didn't really continue
When asked about the end of Drive Like Jehu and its relationship to Hot Snakes, Rick Froberg has previously said that towards the end of Drive Like Jehu, the song structures weren't really that satisfying for him anymore. In some small way, Hot Snakes related to that feeling. It is. It is a reaction. It, it is a reaction. Like, I, I, in Drive Like Jehu, I play nothing but octaves on the guitar. I mean, it, because the, an octave is a single note, and John plays these complicated chords over the top, but so the only thing he can really play without, you know, being this cluttered mess is an octave, and, and I haven't played an octave in a band since. It was just, it was just like, it was just wanted to do something different. Wanted, yeah, I wanted the songs to be shorter. There's a lot of things in Drive Like Jehu that, uh, I don't know, we just kind of grew out of a lot of this, 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 a lot of this, this 90s stuff happening. We wanted to do something that was more rock and roll, Chuck Berry kind of stuff like that, you know. And we didn't start this band together, Hot Snakes. John and, uh, John started this band with Jason Corcunas. And they had this, they had like that whole first record, Hot Snakes record, recorded before I started singing on it. They just asked, he, he was played it for me. I was like, this is amazing, I love this. And uh, he's like, oh, you want to sing on it? So I was like, okay. It wasn't like me and John got together and, you know, conspired against Mark or, or the rest of the guys. It was just, it just ended up that way. I just, I really liked what they had. And when he asked me to sing, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll sing. I, I want to be in this band. It sounds great. As mentioned earlier, Hot Snakes would occasionally play certain Drive Like Jehu songs live. When he discovered this, Trombino was... well... I was... so pissed when I heard that. Like, that was such a bummer. Like, from my, my outsider standpoint, like... What the fuck? Like, you don't want to play in Drive Like Jehu, but you want to play Drive Like Jehu songs and and songs that like like songs off Game Crime, like the songs that I really liked, you know. And uh, uh, yeah, I was it it made me it bummed me out so so much because I still wanted to be in Drive Like Jehu, you know. And 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 I'm seeing my bandmates like cheating on me <laughs> or whatever, you know, in a way. I mean, not really, but like that's how it felt. It just felt like. Felt pretty, pretty shitty at first. Have you expressed any of this to them? No, no. We we I haven't really t- talked about it. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of wish we were having this conversation as a group because it'd be interesting to hear, have everybody like chime in. It's probably more. Uh, you're probably getting more good juicy bits individually than like if we were all together. But it, I would be curious to hear how they, what their take was on all that and why they started Hot Snakes as opposed to continuing with Jehu, you know? I would be curious about that. And you have to ask John, because like I said, I, I joined the I joined Hot Snakes after, like, the he'd already recorded this, him and Jason had recorded basically an entire record instrumentally. And I think, you'd have to ask him. I, I don't, to me, yeah, it seems like it's kind of a reaction. It seems like a, actually, you know what? It is not. It's not. Because it's, it's, it's not that different than what Rocker from Crypt does. It's, it's rock and roll. It's, it's hopped up or whatever. And in order for it to be a reaction, I think that I would have had to have been involved with it at least for me at the, at the get-go like with this idea blah 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 it just kind of happened it was just here's another band it wasn't uh, it wasn't really a reaction i think i think everyone wanted to play something else besides you know we're doing a drive with jay or we got, everyone got to, we did that so that was the next thing you know we started hearing a lot of bands that kind of sounded like drive like jay and most of the stuff i don't really care about you know i'm i got no problem with it or anything like that but it's like it just I'd rather listen to ACDC or something like that than, than, than most of the bands. So it's, 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 we wanted to, as you get older, you want to do music that's more something you like. <laughs> um, whereas Drive Like Jehu, I think, was just music that was just pure self-expression, you know, uh, on a very sort of base level, because I, for me, at least, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do much other than, and I had to scream. 
to be heard. I, you know, it's like I had it's this crazy thing. And as you, as you get more control over your situation, you get to you get to choose more what you want to do. You have options to. Well, I could, you know, I can imitate this, or I can be influenced by this. But if you're just, if you're just kind of wailing, then that's that's the sound of that. That's basically what it is, at least for me. In their absence, the legend of Drive Like Jehu grew, much like the case of Slint. More people seemed interested in Drive Like Jehu after they broke up than when they were actually together. Kennedy sounds like he was only vaguely aware of the band's mythical status until they started playing again recently. I think, you know, it's like uh, just one of those absence makes the heart grow fonder kind of things. I don't know. I'm stoked that people liked it because I like it. And so, you you know, you always hope other people like it too. And, and if it has staying power, that's that's pretty awesome too i mean it's that's one of the things with with the new shows that we've been doing 20 years later but you know like we just played in denver and a kid that was 19 came up and started talking to me outside and and wasn't even alive you're just you're kind of like wow this is wow you know i it, it's pretty amazing but at the same time it's like i don't want to get my head up all in it and try and figure it out it's just it's just cool and you just gotta i kind of think of it of the way that how we started these kids are that here in our record are doing the same kind of thing with their friends just like you said with you know other people you know listen to it and get excited about it and then try and do something themselves and 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 go from there and keep keep the uh path going and i hope that path does keep going because with the way that you know, a lot of things are gone these days. It seems like it's harder and harder for that kind of, I guess, camaraderie to happen. Or maybe I'm just old and don't see it anymore. And it is happening still. Probably is. It's got to be. I mean, there's nothing special about what we were doing or what anybody does now. It's just as long as they're doing it and having a good time, then hopefully that grows whatever that good time is and makes other people happy, too. Froberg and Reese are a bit more diplomatic about the band's status and also more aware of how music is consumed over time. Beats me. I don't know. It, it connects with people for some reason. I don't know. Or some people. Some people like it. <laughs> a lot of people don't like it and have told me so. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it is It is a pretty pretty pungent stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know why, uh, I don't know why uh, people, how people feel about it. And... I don't think it's that popular. I think it's more maybe maybe influential might be the word. It's, there's there's a lot of bands who were influenced by it. They were inspired by the guitar kind of thing and stuff like that. And, you know, making a racket. You know, we weren't the only people doing stuff like that. But it's hard for me to say. I, I don't know. I, I can't really uh, look at it from their perspective. I don't really know what they, what they get out of it. I think that happens a lot, you know, because with, with a lot of bands where it's like people didn't get the opportunity to see them. And it's like, oh, you want something that you kind of can't have because it doesn't exist anymore. Maybe I don't know. I don't. I think also a lot of bands that really liked Drive Like Jehu were, you know, started. And I think that kind of that sound became. I don't even know if you want to say that sound, but a, a similar kind of kind of sound became a little bit more uh, in vogue. You know, I think there's bands that were kind of not really doing what we were doing, but just kind of like you know, kind of the same kind of maybe approach or whatever. I don't know. I really don't know. I like that people like the band. It's not that I don't care. I do care. I think it's cool, you know. 
but I don't really think about why or, you know, I think a lot of it too is just like there was younger people that didn't get to see the band and they're just kind of like word of mouth, you know. Fans often wondered why Drive Like Jehu never played again and came to the conclusion that while Reese and Froberg were still active artists, Kennedy and Trombino simply didn't play anymore. Now, as you heard earlier, Trombino says he would have played this music again in a heartbeat, particularly since most of the uncertainty about it was dealt with ahead of the Balboa Park reunion show in 2014. Until we actually did it, we didn't know if we were actually going to do it or be able to pull it off. Like, I had no idea until we, like, we didn't rehearse for that show until a week before the show. So I had no idea what was going to happen. I was terrified. I hadn't really played drums in 20 years. And I didn't know if it was going to feel good, if it was going to be fun. I didn't know what the motivations for everybody else were. I didn't know anything. So I, I wouldn't say before, oh yeah, this is the beginning of, you know, we're going to do more stuff. I, no way. Like I, I, I actually don't even know if this, the show at the Oregon Pavilion is even going to happen. Like even, who knows, you know? Like I didn't, it wasn't actually in my calendar until like, I can't, until they announced it. Like, like I had almost like, didn't, I didn't think it was going to happen until it, until it was announced. And I'm like, oh shit, this is really going down. Like, and that was like a month before or something. Like, I remember being in the studio, like, when we were rehearsing, you know, I'd set up the drums. I'm so fucking nervous. I hadn't really seen these guys in, you know, like, maybe in passing at a Hot Snake show or something. You know, like, Mike, I don't think I'd seen in the in the 20 years or whatever, like, maybe one or two times, you know. Really lost touch with them. And, you know, I'm setting up my drums, this brand new drum set I bought just because of the show. And... I'm nervous, you know, and I hadn't played in forever. And we start playing and it's it's rough, you know, and weird. Like as weird as you can imagine it would be after twenty years of not playing and like not knowing any like all the stuff we've talked about, like not knowing any of the the backstory of why it had been twenty years and why we hadn't played and, and all this and but like by the probably second or third song, it started to click, like, pretty quickly. It, I felt like it was coming together. And it, it hit me, like, that this is going to, it's going to be good. This is, we're going to fucking do this. Like, and the second practice, it was, like, so much better than the first one. And it felt really good. And the third, even better, you know, like, so, like, yeah. I don't know. I don't remember what the original question was, but, but definitely, like, I had no idea that it was going to happen until it actually did. And until we were actually in the room together playing, I had no idea um, that it could feel good and that there, that, that we could be Drive Like Jehu again. Drive Like Jehu's songs are impressive for many reasons. They're ambitious and a very sophisticated version of punk's raw power. Musicians in particular swoon over them because they're real and passionate, 
But as Froberg discovered when returning to the songs again recently, they're also a real task to play. They were challenging for me because I was challenged. I didn't, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And you wanted to, you wanted to really fill up that space, or at least I did. And I was trying to keep up with uh, you know, these ringer musicians, at least to me. So yeah, it was a, it was a challenge to play. And it's, it's kind of a challenge to play now because it's like, you know, why did I do that? That's really, <laughs> really strange going back and playing this, this, this music you made when you were just kind of learning to play guitar or whatever. But yeah, and it's also physically a lot, it demands a little more out of, like, out of me, like as far as the uh, screaming and yelling thing. This is coming from a, you know, a 40-something-year-old smoker. So it's a little, it's a little, yeah, it's kind of physically challenging in some ways. But um, the band gets enough momentum to, that it just sort of, it just takes on a life of its own when we start playing. It's really, it's really fun. It's a lot of fun. The most fun song for me to play is probably the most challenging, and that's Rome Plows. It's crazy. It's a crazy fucking song. And... But it's so much fun to play because it's so crazy. I feel like even when I'm in it, like it's not like a oh that's we've just finished that song wasn't that great. I I feel like in the moment, like it's it's one of the only songs that I can I can say without equivocation or whatever. Like in the moment, I there's every time I'm playing that song, as I'm playing it, I'm thinking this is fucking fun. Like I am enjoying playing this song, and I kind of wish. It, well, maybe maybe if all the songs were like that, I, I wouldn't feel the same way. But um, the, it, I don't know. I don't know if it's because it's challenging or just because I don't know. I don't know what it is about it. It's but it it is definitely our most challenging, and it's our most my personal most fun song to play. You got to concentrate a lot. Part of concentrating on it is not concentrating on what you're playing, but concentrating on what it sounds like. So you you do get to en- enjoy it, even though you're concentrating. It's it's not like it's just like some tedious thing that you're doing. It's like, you know, I'm doing something for the reward of getting to play with these three other guys. For me personally, I mean, I get to sit up there and, and plunk away on bass and get to hear crazy guitar coming out of John Reese that just like, wow, I'm playing along with this. This is amazing. And then, wow, listen to these drums and 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 rick's guitar and then as far as as far as the vocals went you know a lot of times we didn't even know what the vocals were till we recorded a record and then we're like and then you get to like read rick's lyrics and go wow these are super cool lyrics so it's you concentrate on on performing it but you're more concentrating on what you're hearing and going wow this is really cool I don't want to sound like, oh, you know, I'm full of myself or whatever, because I don't think I am, but, you know, my friends might tell you differently, but it's something you can't get. I haven't found that you can get that kind of thing without playing in a band and enjoying playing along with other people that just makes it a wonderful thing. With the band playing live shows again, some are wondering what the future of Drive Like Jay Who looks like. Even some of the band members are wondering about this. I think I'm kind of just in the mindset of let's just see what happens with what we've got right now on our plate and then, you know, think about it then. I don't really want to, like, think too much on it now. It seems to me that everybody's having a good time doing it in the band, so I definitely am. I might be so more so than anybody else just because it's been such a long time that, you know, I kind of, in my own mind, put 
music on the back burner or not even on the burner as far as anything that was going to happen. So when it did happen and I got this chance to play again with John and Rick and Mark, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's, I'm, this is a great thing for me. I, I, I'm enjoying it immensely. Probably more than the rest of the guys that have been doing stuff like that. Maybe Mark is in the same vein as me because he hasn't been doing it for a long time either. But I think John's enjoying it. I think Rick's enjoying it. I think we're all enjoying it. I'm not trying to say that they aren't. I'm just saying I know I am. Well, yeah, there is talk. There's, I mean, but it's just, it's talk. That's what it is, you know. But there's, yeah, there's talk of, of, of uh, maybe let's do this, maybe let's do that, you know. We'll see what, what, what comes of it, you know, hopefully. It, it, sometimes things take more than just desire. You know, you have to let, you need to make not only time, but, you, but inspiration has to strike as well. So we, we just, uh, we'll just see what happens. We're having, like, you know, a lot of fun right now. And the shows are, you know, they're still getting better, you know. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know. In my opinion, I think we're playing just as good as we ever have. I mean, I might be completely delusional, but at least it feels that way to me. It feels like we're we're playing just as good. We do sh- we did shit the bed the last show we did on a, on a song, and uh, that was pretty bad actually. <laughs> but uh, but for the most part, I think we're just as good as we ever were. <laughs> I would, yeah. I I've really enjoyed playing these shows. And it seems like people are enjoying seeing them and want want to keep seeing us play. So, like, but at a certain point, I, f- I feel like uh, I don't know how much how long we can do it. Like, I, I don't want to um, I don't want to milk it too long. You know, I would be very interested in maybe not even recording anything or releasing anything, but I would be very curious about trying to write and seeing if we could if we still have anything to say. You know, I'm super down for that. You know, it's something that that has to come when the four of us are together and talk about stuff and how we feel as a, as a group, not as individuals, before we would even think about projecting anything in the future. Because it kind of goes with it. It's like, you know, you don't want to plan things without everybody being involved. If I can be even more vague, I'd try to be. obviously it would be pretty amazing if the story of drive like jehu wasn't over yet with the possible exception of fugazi a drive like jehu reunion has always seemed like the most improbable thing to happen in punk but now it's happened some of us like trombino can't help but wonder what these four dudes might come up with if they jammed a bit as expected rick froberg has the most casual attitude about new Drive Like Jehu material. I don't think anybody would give a shit, but I, I mean, I think it'd be fun for us. It would be, it'd be, you know, it'd be, it'd be great. Why not? What the heck? I mean, we've done very little, you know, jamming, where you just sort of, you know, we did a little bit of it, and um, I think it'd be fun, yeah. It'd be fun to write a couple songs and see how that, see what happens. Why not?
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.